Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound study scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Julia Regal. Thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast episode. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so thrilled that you agreed. And I think that having you on will be really exciting for listeners today. I hope so. Let me allow you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about where you're coming from, your name, your title, where you work, and anything else you would like us to know about you. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Julia Regal. I got my PhD in 2021 from Indiana University, Bloomington. My PhD is actually in history, not in musicology, which I think we'll be talking about a fair bit today. I'm currently a star fellow in Judaica at Harvard University, where I'm working on turning my dissertation research into a book. This book project is tentatively titled In the Season of Hunger and Plague, Musical Life in the Warsaw Ghetto. And it's building on research I did in graduate school in Poland and in the United States, especially in Warsaw itself, on the varied forms of musical life in the ghetto in the handful of years that it existed. I've sometimes joked this is a history of one neighborhood of one city for about 18 months, and it is, but it's also much more than that. I'm looking at the varied context in which music performance took place, ranging from the ghetto symphony orchestra to schools for young children in the ghetto, to the streets, to the cafes that the relatively small number of relatively privileged ghetto residents could patronize, and why people were playing music, what forms it took, and really most importantly, how they understood it and its importance for them. The thing that I've really come to in this project is to understand music as like a marker of, or a mechanism of, perhaps is a better way to say it, of identity, of building a sense of Europeanness, of belonging in Europe, even against the context of a genocide. And these are the kinds of questions I'm really interested in exploring as a scholar. Awesome. I'd love to just jump right in with something that you said there about coming to music history from the perspective of a historian. What has that been like? And how did you end up looking at a Jewish music subject? It's an interesting story because my interest in both topics sort of starts in the same place, which was weirdly enough in my mom's minivan when I was about nine or 10 years old. I was a really strange child. I feel I should preface this with that. We were very much a national public radio kind of family, listened to that all the time. And they were playing that day a recording of a string quartet by the Czech Jewish composer Pavel Haas, who died in the Holocaust. And at the time I was taking music lessons, I'm actually a violist by training, so I do have a background in music performance, which has been really crucial, I think, to me doing what I do as a historian. And there was something about this music that just struck me and really fascinated me. My mom insists that I made her pull over the car. I think she's exaggerating. I don't remember it that way. In any case, I was really fascinated by this music. I made my parents buy me a recording. (laughs) They were really puzzled by this, but they said, okay, sure. And I wanted more information. I wanted to understand this. I had a very basic understanding of the Holocaust as a terrible thing that had happened. And 
I found this idea of music existing during that event as sort of, you know, there's sort of a cognitive dissonance to that, which I think is true for many people who work in the area of Holocaust music specifically. We get interested because it seems unnatural. And I can say now that I would honestly be more surprised if people weren't playing music. But this is really where my interest started, a desire to understand what brings people to keep engaging in music, keep engaging in cultural activities under these conditions. In college, I ultimately decided to major in history. It was the thing I was really connecting with. I wanted to understand the roots of modern conflict and all these kinds of things to understand how we got here from there, if that makes sense. But this interest still in music and the Holocaust was persisting for me. And I ended up doing my undergraduate senior thesis broadly on that topic, but I still wasn't satisfied. I went out there, I read all these things that different people had written, and I was like, this isn't enough. There's some things that just aren't being explained by this. And I wanted to do more. And this is what actually led me to apply to grad school. So I really was led to this by this specific topic and have just continued to find it more and more interesting over time, which is really an ideal situation to be in instead of, of course, getting tired of it. And I think I've gone pretty far beyond that sort of initial question of how can such a thing happen, but that at its root is really the thing that brought me to this. You'd asked also what this is like as a historian, which is sort of its own question. It's sometimes a bit of an awkward disciplinary negotiation. Most historians, by and large, do not deal with music as a source material. There are exceptions. The historian Shirley Gilbert was a really instructive example for me. She wrote a foundational book called Music and the Holocaust, published in 2005. And that, to me, was like a clear example of, okay, you can do this. You can use music as a historical source. But it does sometimes raise some eyebrows. And it also sometimes baffles historians who I think aren't quite clear on how it does function. Historians, I think, tend to view music a bit more like the set dressing of the past and not as a substantive thing in itself. Now, as a scholar, the things that I'm actually analyzing in large part are actually people writing about music and not always the music itself, although it does play its own role. And that puts me, I think, a bit more squarely in the realm of a more traditional historian. We're very comfortable working with textual sources, less so with other types of sources. But it does definitely put me between a couple of different disciplines. And so I often find myself turning to my musicologist colleagues and having them read my writing and saying, hey, does this make sense? Am I making a credible point here? Because there is this other discipline that I have a foot in. And it's a priority for me that I'm able to speak coherently to both. Let's circle back for a minute to your scholarly trajectory. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide that your initial research topic was the one for you? You gave us this wonderful story just now about your childhood epiphany moment. But were there other factors that led you to this? And then in turn, tell me a little bit about that process of taking this research subject into graduate school. Yeah, the reason that I began to focus on it in undergrad was essentially because I realized I really wanted to do my degree in history. I realized I was interested in this era of history in Central and Eastern Europe in the early and mid 20th century, interested particularly in the Holocaust. And I knew I had to write a senior thesis. And I started thinking I could come back to this question that's bugged me for a long time and try to see what's out there. When I was nine, there was not really much in the way a, very little had actually been published, and B, certainly nothing had been published for a nine-year-old. But this was something that it just sort of felt natural at the time. 
I will also add that this was a time in my life where, so I'd mentioned previously, I have training as a violist. I unfortunately developed an overuse injury over time and am no longer able to play. And this is a way for me to still have music in my life also. You know, it's been a really important part of my life, an important means of expression, and to still have some access to that was also really important to me. It was also a matter of finding a graduate school that was the right fit, and IU was really helpful in that respect because they both have a very strong history program and a really renowned music school. And I really had the benefit of advisors coming from both of those worlds and sort of being able to exist in both spaces to a certain degree. And that was really helpful as well. In terms of focusing on Warsaw itself, this was a product of the archives. My first real archival research trip. This was a couple years into graduate school. I got some funding to go spend some time in. I, I technically got it for a, a program I'd applied to that I didn't get into, but I still had the funding. And I was like, well, time to go to Europe and go to the archives as you do on sort of a pre-dissertation research trip when you're working on Europe. And I zeroed in on the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw as a place that most likely had records. They were initially not convinced of this. My initial interactions with them, they were like, no, we don't have any music. And I said, well, can I look at these files anyway? And the files did in fact have a great deal of music in them. I've been back multiple times and this has kept happening. The result of this was that after about a week in their archive, another American scholar came in and was interested in music and they brought him over to me and said, this is the expert on music in our archive. And I said, wait a minute, what? <laughs> because I was still very much struggling with Polish. This is my first time in an archive period. I was very overwhelmed, but now I was suddenly the expert on music in this archive. And what I kept finding was that there was actually this enormous quantity of sources in this archive concerning Warsaw specifically that hardly anyone had touched involving music, particularly coming from what scholars call the Ringelblum archive or the Oinig Shabbos archives. This is this organization that existed in the Warsaw ghetto headed by a historian named Emmanuel Ringelblum that sought to document daily life in the ghetto. And it means that we have this really unparalleled look at what people's lives were really like within its walls. We don't really have to depend just on perpetrator sources, on German sources or on memoir or other sources like that. We have this really immediate record of what it was like to experience that. There are similar records from some other ghettos in Eastern Europe, but very little on this scale and this level of detail. And that does include a lot of records on music. And I realized this is really something I could do. And that really, for me, was what narrowed it down, was spending that time with the sources and realizing, oh, there's so much here that no one's touched. And there's very clearly a story. I love all of that. And I guess my follow-up question is, if you might want to expand a little bit on the kinds of musical sources you were finding, what kind of music was being played in these locations at this time? Yeah, there's actually a specific story from a document that I come back to a lot when I think about the kinds of questions I became really interested in asking of these sources. It actually comes from a newspaper. There was a newspaper called Gazeta Zhidovska, the Jewish Gazette, that was published under censorship, but legally in German-occupied Poland between the summer of 1940, late summer, and July of 1942. And the first page of the newspaper is sort of global news, and it's generally just for German propaganda. You can ignore most of that. But the inside of it is where the really interesting stuff happens, because there's actually news from the major ghettos. 
there are advertisements, there are promotional materials, there's serialized stories and poetry and so forth. There's materials for children. It's really a fascinating look. And I came across this story in this newspaper of a traffic jam. But this wasn't really an ordinary traffic jam. It was a traffic jam in the Warsaw ghetto caused by a man who was walking along in the street who stopped and held up traffic because he was listening to music coming from inside of a cafe. And he couldn't afford to go into the cafe. He couldn't afford the food there, but he wanted to listen to this music. But he started causing this situation on the street outside. A police officer ended up getting involved and dragging him away. It was It's written in this very dramatic style. But I was really struck by this story and the dynamics that it captured. And there were key concepts at work in this story surrounding power and space. Who has access to what spaces? What are they hearing in those spaces? And who is defining the purpose of those spaces, essentially? Like, what is the street for and what can you hear there? What is the inside of a cafe for and what can you hear there? And how do those experiences sort of play out? Who has the power to say who can enter these spaces, who can determine what's heard in these spaces? And that to me was really a fascinating question that developed into interest in the field of sound studies. But these questions of space and power helped me shape my research questions with a lot more precision. In terms of the types of music that were performed, it is incredibly varied. There was, as I mentioned, a symphony orchestra, they were playing the great works of the European orchestral canon, most predominantly Beethoven. This was completely illegal, and for most of the orchestra's existence, it was not a problem. Uh, this only changed in April of 1942, at which point the SS, for reasons I still haven't been able to quite establish, decided that this was no longer acceptable, and they banned the orchestra from further performances. But if you do look at the statistics, which I worked out to the best of my ability, we don't have a fully complete record, but I went through and tabulated all of the performances I could find records of. Beethoven is overwhelmingly the most performed composer, followed by Mozart. So they were playing a very typical, like Central European, even very German classical canon. They were also playing some Jewish composers as well, particularly, I think the most performed quote-unquote Jewish composer was Mendelssohn, who of course is a bit of a complex case because he converted to Christianity as a child. But certainly for many outsiders, he's been labeled a, a Jewish composer.
There was also, you know, chamber music, which again, a lot of Beethoven, a lot of Haydn, a lot of really major classical works. There were a handful of composers who were having their own works performed in the ghetto, but this was relatively rare. One particularly interesting case, there was actually a prodigy, Yosima Feldshu, but she was 11 or 12 years old. She was a pianist. She performed with the orchestra and also did some sort of solo performances on her own. She was really this interesting figure who also was, you know, sort of a young composer, but unfortunately did not survive. There are also performances of popular music from the interwar era, jazz and tango, genres that were really widely performed, widely popular in interwar Poland. And yes, tango really was an enormously popular genre in interwar Poland. Not quite Argentinian tango, but they certainly call it tango. There was also folk songs, both Polish and Jewish folk songs, traditional. Eastern European Jewish folk songs in Yiddish and Polish, sometimes in a handful of other languages, a really wide range of different works. I will say that for the most part, you don't see a whole lot of more adventurous 20th century stuff being performed. It's pretty heavily weighted toward the classical and romantic eras in terms of what repertoire is getting performed, but it's a really remarkable range. Oh, that is wonderful. Who would you say have been some of your biggest mentors, advocates, and role models on your scholarly journey, just to totally switch tracks? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say... First and foremost, my dissertation advisor, Mark Roseman, has been a tremendous support, even when I think at times he's perhaps a little puzzled by the music part. He's still been a really great support to me and a great source of encouragement in terms of like, yes, this is possible, as well as I think really pushing me to do more with it, to really take the analytical focus further than just saying, well, this existed and it was remarkable. It's like, okay, but why? Why is it important? I also got a great deal of mentorship from Helena Goldberg, who's also at Indiana, who's a musicologist who works on Polish music history as well as Polish Jewish music history. She knows more than I think anyone else maybe on the planet about these topics and is just a tremendous source of wisdom as well as great kindness and often some humor. 
And she's been really wonderful as well. Brett Werb, who's the music archivist at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in DC, has also been just wonderful. In terms of the specific topic of music in the Holocaust, I don't think there's anyone who knows more than him or has access to more resources than him. I mean, his office is like this tiny treasure trove of mysteries that you've never heard of. And he'll just present something to you and say, here, I want to see what you make of this. And there's a number of sources I've come across that way just by sitting in his office and he'll just hand something to me and say, here you go, figure this out. He's a real kick. And I also want to say that I had the benefit of some really wonderful colleagues in musicology, people who are grad students at the same time as me, who've been tremendously supportive. Cynthia Dreddle, who's now based in Germany, is a very close friend of mine and has been a wonderful help, especially on the music parts. I very often send her writing and she sends me her writing and we trade back and forth, as well as Nicolette Van den Bochert, who's still a grad student at IU right now. She also works on music in the Holocaust, especially post-war. And she and I actually lived together. We were roommates for a year and we joked that we had the largest library effectively of books on music in the Holocaust in our shared apartment. It was a very weird apartment, but we had fun. Awesome. What kind of advice would you offer to prospective students or new scholars who are planning to enter a similar field of study to you? Well, I think if I could speak specifically to historians, I would say don't be scared of working with music. It's not going to bite you. And neither will musicologists. They're usually very nice people. And it's been tremendously worthwhile for me. Like, I think that, at least I, I hope it's convincing, you know, my work is that looking at this question of music in the Warsaw Ghetto and what it was doing is actually getting at some really fundamental questions about how Jews in Europe understood themselves, understood their community and their role in the world in this crucial moment of crisis, that it really shows these questions in a different light than other sources do. And that's a thing worth pursuing. I think in general, that's sort of my advice, like, don't be afraid to think outside the box in terms of sources, but also to, of course, to pursue those relationships, those professional relationships with colleagues in other disciplines as well. Mm -hmm. that, that interdisciplinary work to me has been tremendously fruitful and that I found I've always been very happy with the results when I have reached out and asked for help, honestly. Said, I don't know the literature on this topic. What do you recommend? People are kind and helpful, really. And that's wonderful. Particularly, I think, within our field of Jewish music, people are pretty universally nice and that's great. Yeah, I would totally agree with that sentiment. People in the field of Jewish music are generally pretty nice. I guess we're both at this transitional stage at this moment where we finished the dissertation, which is this wonderful feeling of completion. And now we're looking out onto the horizon of the book project. Yes. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the transformation you think that your research or your presentation of material will undergo as part of this process. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think a really major thing is that it was about two weeks before I defended that I realized that I was actually addressing this question of Jews' relationship with the Enlightenment and emancipation, which is right in the middle of the fundamental questions of modern European Jewish history, is what is the Jewish relationship with the state and with the nation? Who are Jews in relation to that? Are they citizens? Are they fully equal citizens? What is their identity as Jews in that respect? Is it as a religious community, an ethnic community, a national community? Is it cultural? How much are they the same as their neighbors? How much are they different? And what do these similarities or differences mean for who they are and how they see themselves? And it was about two weeks before I defended that I realized like, oh, I'm actually thinking about these or talking about these larger questions with respect to music, that these are things that people are still in the context of the Holocaust even 
actively thinking about, actively seeking to assert in a very real way, yes, we still belong in Europe. We still have a place here through engagement with that canon, with that European musical canon. And this is the issue that I really want to focus on more as I work through this revision process is think about this in relation to this sort of larger issue of modern European Jewish history and how it evolved in this moment of crisis and what light music sheds on that. When I first asked you about participating on the podcast, you'd mentioned that you were wary because you said that you weren't coming to this research as a Jewish person. And I wondered if you might talk a little bit about that perspective of what it might feel like or what the experience is like of coming to Jewish music research as an insider outsider. Yes, that's a very big question. I'm fine talking about it. I think it's it's something that I found I simply have to remain cognizant of and be cognizant of where I'm sort of stepping, if that makes sense. That because of what I do, a very large number of people, I think, assume I am Jewish. And I don't necessarily go out of my way to correct that all of the time because that's also weird to say, oh, just so you know, I'm not Jewish. Like that sounds really <laughs> strange also and can create more questions than it answers. But at the same time, I try to really remain cognizant of I am not speaking on behalf of this community for sure. And I have a responsibility to behave with a certain amount of respect as an outsider who may have a lot of insider knowledge, but is still not part of that community uh, at a fundamental level. And I really just try to sort of come at it with a certain amount of humility and reminding myself of my own positionality, essentially. You know, this is something I deal with in teaching as well. I think most of us do. We often teach about experiences that are not our own. And I talk very frankly with students about this, that this is my own positionality with respect to this topic. This is how I'm coming to it. And I'm doing my best as we can all hope to do. And I try not to do this in a way that's making excuses for myself, but acknowledging where I'm coming from, because that's the reality, you know? Totally. And I think just to add on to that, of course, we know there's no such thing as scholarly objectivity by any sense. Right. Word. For sure. Right. Um, We're all influenced by where we come from. Exactly. We're all influenced by where we come from. And we need, I think, a diversity of perspectives of people coming at these subjects, at these topics from totally different places. And mm -hmm. the handful of folks who are in the discipline of Jewish music studies right now who are not Jewish have so much to teach the rest of us about how to think, how to approach these subjects, where to go next. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's valuable to draw attention to the diversity that is inherently within this discipline already. Right. And, and I do hope that to at least to some degree that my presence, the presence of people like me can help to open the discipline further, because I think there does tend to be perhaps a little bit of parochialism. If I can Absolutely. say that very, very with the kindest possible intentions. Yes. And I think that the field would only benefit from a greater variety of perspectives. Absolutely. You mentioned actually teaching in your last answer. And I wondered if we yeah. could circle back to that again. I know that many scholars celebrate the opportunity to teach others as an extension of their own research pursuits. And so I wondered, knowing that you had ample teaching experience, especially last year, if you might be able to tell me a little bit about your recent teaching experiences and how they've contributed to your research agenda. Yeah, absolutely. So I've taught primarily at Hollins University, which is a small private college in Roanoke, Virginia. It is, I always say, quote unquote, a women's college, but there are actually a huge number of trans students there. I myself am trans, I'm non-binary, and I was 
immediately, essentially the surrogate parent of a very large number of students who came to my office all the time. It was actually really wonderful, and I miss them dearly. I was hired there very much as a history professor, and that was what I was teaching. And at the same time, there were absolutely opportunities to bring bits and pieces of my research into the classroom. For instance, I taught a class last fall on the sensory history of modern Europe, thinking about how people have experienced these key processes and moments in European history through the five senses, thinking about what did the French Revolution sound like? What did World War One smell like? We really loved talking about how stinky the past was. It was really fun. That's so hilarious. Seriously, hot pedagogy tip. If you want to get students interested in the past, talk to them about the stink. They mm -hmm. love it. I mean, we've done sound walks and stuff like that, but I, I never thought to involve some of the other senses. So I quite it, like that. I mean, it actually, when you think about it more, it actually opens up all these really interesting questions about sewage and the importance of sewage in creating the modern city, as well as disease control and a huge variety <laughs> of questions. But yeah, it was very fun. But for instance, in that class, we had a class on Eurovision where we talked about music and the idea of a national music or national expression in music. And students really connected with that. We talked about it previously in the semester when we were in the 19th century, talking about the development of the national schools of music. And I brought in some examples and we listened to them and we talked about like, can we hear something that is German in this or Italian in this? What does it mean to hear something that is definitely national in music? Is that a real thing? And what does it tell us if people are asserting that it is? And the students really enjoyed that. And were really interested to talk about it. And they kept bringing it up again. And I was like, okay, this actually worked. This connected with them. It was very satisfying. I also tend to give students a lot of opportunity to be a little creative in research projects. And so I had a number of students who did projects involving music in one way or another. I actually taught a transgender history class in the spring. I had a student do a project on the discography of the punk musician, Laura Jane Graves, as an expression of trans identity. And it was a great project. So I think that the work I do in certain ways made me more prepared to do creative stuff like that with students. And I found it always really pays off to let them kind of guide me to a certain extent in what they want to explore and what they really care about. When they're really passionate about that, they're going to learn a lot more. They really are. And I found it's really worthwhile. Totally. I think those moments in the classroom where you can get your students to take an idea and run with it are the most productive. Oh, yeah. oh it is so satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when they start to draw connections between things that we've discussed. And it's just, it's incredibly satisfying. Mm -hmm. What kinds of new research questions or subjects are preoccupying you, even thinking beyond the second book? Oh, there's a great number. I became very interested as I was working on the chapter on classical music in the ghetto that is part of this project in this question of why is Beethoven this most performed composer and started poking around at this a broader question, what is the Jewish relationship with Beethoven? How have Jews written about and thought about Beethoven? And so I'm currently working on that a little bit. It'll hopefully be an article sometime soon, particularly about sources in Yiddish on this topic, because boy, are there some interesting things out there, particularly children's literature, funnily enough. I'm also interested in terms of looking forward to a second project this is also something that's kind of spinning out of a question that came up a lot in the dissertation research, which is the issue of gender, mm. uh, gender and sexuality specifically. In the chapter that covers music in cafes and cabarets and theaters and so forth in the ghetto, I ended up grappling a great deal with issues of collaboration. Now, a little bit of background here I think is necessary to make 
clear how this is being framed, the Warsaw Ghetto would not have survived for more than maybe six weeks without smuggling. This was a simple matter of calories. Official rations were for approximately 183 calories per day for Jews. You can't live on that. The ghetto survived on smuggling. And smuggling became a really big business. Some people really did genuinely become quite rich off of it, very temporarily. And there were also people who had connections and pre-war wealth and so forth that they managed to keep some hold of going into the ghetto, despite legal measures that were meant to strip their wealth from them. So there was this sort of thin crust of people who did have more access to power and to resources and could pay bribes and so forth to make their lives easier. And for obvious reasons, when you consider, again, that calorie number for rations, there was a lot of resentment directed at these people. They were not necessarily popular. And it is certainly true that some of them engaged in less than moral behavior. Now, I think for the most part, it's out of self-preservation. And I don't necessarily think it's my job to pass any kind of judgment. But there are these really sort of thorny moral issues that do come up when writing about this. But one thing I noticed as I was working on this chapter is the way that sources at the time and even post-war speak differently about men who patronized these spaces versus women and the particular kinds of accusations that get leveled at women that don't show up for men who are in many cases, doing the exact same things, mm -hmm. the exact same behaviors in the same places at the same times, they are fine. Women are not. It is women who get accused specifically of what in the French context is sometimes called euphemistically horizontal collaboration, which is a really nice way of saying survival sex work and really, really fundamentally survival sex work in the context of genocide. And there's usually no evidence for it. Of course. And this extends more broadly beyond that. There are moments in diaries where men write about in this very accusatory tone of seeing women wearing lipstick. How dare they? This is going to be the thing that dooms us all, clearly. And this is sarcasm to a certain extent. But really, this anger about lipstick is there in the sources. And this kept jumping out to me. And I kept thinking there is really something going on here as well. This intersection between these spaces of entertainment that are a specific type of space of entertainment. This is not a concert hall. This is a cabaret. This is a cafe. Spaces that have their own particular history of association with political radicalism, but also moral threat. Sexual deviancy might be occurring there. There are even racial overtones that show up around issues of performing jazz music in particular. And this is something I really want to explore in the second project, spinning off, not just in the performance context, not even just in the context of music, but looking at this broader issue of how is women's behavior being evaluated by the men living alongside them? How are the expectations placed on them unequal in many ways? And in some cases, unfortunately, how does this work out in post-war honor trials 
where accused collaborators were put on trial by surviving members of the Jewish community in some cases with very little evidence, mm. sometimes accused by men who were, again, in the same places at the same times right. and were never accused of a single thing. Um, So that's the kind of question I'm really interested in looking into in the future. It's less directly to do with music, but it's very much come out of the work with music. I don't think I would have seen this jump out so clearly were it not for working on the topic of music. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm excited to see where that project goes. That sounds very like there could be a lot of really fruitful material there. Yeah, I do expect it to make some people mad, but you know. Well, I mean, what are you doing if you're not making a couple? Exactly. You have to. I think of it as making the right people mad. Yes, exactly. (laughs) As we zoom out to wrap up today's recording session, I wondered if you might tell me a little bit about how you understand the field of Jewish music. What kinds of issues or challenges with this field of study do you think that scholars today need to remain attentive to? Yeah, I was thinking about this question a whole lot. And I was thinking about the two disciplines that I'm sort of straddling here, as I mentioned earlier, both history and musicology. And I think they're both emerging from the same 19th century German academic context, really, in terms of how we practice them today. And as I was thinking about this, it brought me to this realization that I think the way that the field of Jewish music has understood itself very much comes out of that context. For one, it means asking a whole lot of definitional questions about what really is and isn't Jewish music. And we can talk about that more in a minute uh, if you'd like, but I'm not always sure that these definitional questions are the most interesting ones to ask. That at a certain point, I think we get too wrapped up in the minutia of things that may not be actually all that important at the end of the day. When we keep asking, well, what is this Jewish music or isn't it Jewish music? To me, the much more interesting questions are, what do people think is Jewish music and why? And I think that reframing these questions that way has the potential to open up the field to think about things beyond more traditional contexts of Jewish studies, which does still tend to be a relatively Eurocentric field, and to really explore divisions of race and class and ethnicity and gender in more detail. I think these are things that certainly scholars are doing, and I would love to see more of them. I think that's an area where we could see a lot of really creative, interesting work in the future. Yeah, definitely. And your answer makes me think a little bit about Lila Corwin Berman's article that I sent you, Jewish mm-hmm. History Beyond the Jewish People. Yeah. And this idea of how much are we restricted to these definitions of even what Jewish peoplehood or personhood is in yes. trying to do something like Jewish music history. And it is not that these questions don't matter. It's that I don't think we as scholars necessarily have to provide the definitive answer mm-hmm. because I honestly don't think there ever will be one. Right. And then what happens when we encounter subjects that we can't easily definitively label as yes. Jewish? Are they not part of the history? Yes. Or, or do they have something unique to teach us in the history? Right. I mean, the work I'm doing at a certain point, I think the people I'm studying were making a case that Beethoven could be a Jewish composer. And they're not actually saying that Beethoven was Jewish, but they're saying that something about what he embodies and what his music represents is Jewish. And that has nothing to do with ethnicity or religion. It's a more of a cultural identity for them. And that to me is where the really interesting stuff is happening. This question of not necessarily what is at its root, finding this almost almost a genetic quality to it to identify right. the Jewishness, but instead saying, okay, but what if people think is Jewish and why do they think that? Yes. Exactly. What does it mean for them for something to be Jewish? For this, for Beethoven to be Jewish. 
yeah, why why does that matter? Why would you try to make that argument that Beethoven is sort of a Jewish composer? And it's like, well, because it's because of his place in the canon. And it means if Beethoven is so central to the European musical canon, and if he is also sort of Jewish, it puts Jews at the center of that musical canon. It is an argument of belonging. Right. And that to me is much more interesting than saying, well, of course, Beethoven's music isn't Jewish because he wasn't a Jew. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this to me, I think, is a really fascinating way of looking at it that I think helps keep us from honestly getting caught up and in some ways spending too much time worrying too precisely about is this in the sort of right harmonic minor mode that we want to be hearing from Jewish music. It's like, no, what do people think it is actually and why? Mm -hmm. Do you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or an identifiable Jewish sound? Why or why not? If so, how would you characterize it? And if this question seems too essentializing, what questions about the music and sound of Jewish experience would you ask instead? I think my answer is yes and no. There's Jewish music insofar as people think there's Jewish music. And it's very tautological, and I freely acknowledge that. But as I mentioned, I'm honestly less interested in saying that something is inherently Jewish. Of course, there's always going to be works where we can say that. We can talk about cantorial music, right? as something that is inherent to Jewish religious practice. But at the same time, cantorial music is going to be influenced by external musical processes. It's not like it's some sort of pure lineage, no matter how late 19th century, early 20th century Jewish musicologists try to insist that it was. Right. Looking at you, Edelson. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Ouch. <laughs> I mean, he's a very interesting figure, but he was also Ross. <laughs> in many ways. If he's saying interesting things, though, like that is actually the thing that to me is more interesting is like, why is he making this Edelson as a figure in Jewish musicology? Why would he make this argument that there are these identifiable Jewish elements in music that we could trace all the way back to ancient Israel? And it's like, well, it's because of the nationalist, I would argue, because of the sort of nationalist context that he's operating in within Europe that is looking for these ur-texts, to use a musical word, of their national identity And that includes in music, they're trying to find these pure folk song sounds that are inherently Hungarian or Polish or Russian or or Jewish. Mm -hmm. So again, I think to me, the interesting question is really to look at what people are saying is Jewish about music and why they're saying it, why they're saying it in that moment, what that tells us about how they're interacting with their world, how they understand their role as an individual and the Jewish community's role in the world what that means about the nature of that community, how it's constituted, why it is the shape that it is, who's in it, who's out, who might be in a sort of ambiguous situation, and what the future of that community should look like, which is often also a very big part of it. That's sort of, I think, sometimes the undercurrent of a lot of these older sources on this topic is, you know, they're thinking very actively like what we want our community to look like in the future which is very revealing often about how they understand that community and what their priorities are. A bit rambling, but I think that's really where I come at this from then. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Julia, for your wonderful answers to all of these questions and for your time today and for joining us on the podcast. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a delight. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and Harvard University Center for Jewish Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Philip Alexander to discuss his recent monograph, Sounding Jewish in Berlin, and his latest work on the music of the Jews of Scotland. 